We are in the book of Psalms this morning, in Psalm 107. We are in this series uh, called Summer Psalms, and we're two weeks in now. But we're looking at a selection of psalms together as a church over the summer, and today we are in Psalm 107. If you're taking notes, the title is At Wit's End. At Wit's End. Maybe some of you were at Wit's End this morning, getting your kids ready for church, I don't know, or getting yourself ready. But that phrase, interestingly, that expression, that idiom, at wit's end, maybe you heard your mom say it to you when you were growing up as a kid, it's a little bit of a dated expression, but that expression, if you've ever wondered, where does that expression come from? It actually comes from Psalm 107, from the King James Version, but it's also here in the ESV as well. But we all know at various times in our lives and circumstances that we've gone through, we know what it's like to get to the end of ourselves, right? Where we have nothing left to give, where all of our wisdom, all of our resources are gone, and we are at our wit's end. We've got nothing left to give. We're going to talk about that this morning out of this Psalm 107. Before we do, let me pray together. God, we uh, come before you and God, it's our desire to give thanks to you for this love that we were just singing about, this redeeming love that has purchased us from our troubles and saved us from our sin and brought us into a relationship with you, God. You didn't just forgive us and then leave us there. No, you brought us in closer and, give, and have given us a hope for now and, and into eternal life, and we give you thanks and, and praise for that this morning, and, and we want to be motivated to use that not just as our worship, but also as our witness, to go out and tell people from this place of the great things that you have done. And I pray that that would be uh, the source of our discussion this morning from your word, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love this psalm, uh, and you'll see why here in a moment, but this psalm essentially retells of God's love in the past to his people, but it's also the mysterious way in which he loves his people when they're so unlovable and when they've come to that place where they're at the end of themselves. What does God's love look like there and in that space? That's what we're going to talk about. And what this psalm essentially does is it calls upon us, those who have tasted of the of the goodness of God, of God's love, He calls upon us to go and share that testimony, that story, to sing and make known of God's mysterious and unfailing love demonstrated through answered prayer and deliverance. So that's what this psalm essentially is calling us to go and do. Now, we, we're not going to read the whole psalm because we don't have time. It's a really long one. I may have bit off more than I can chew this morning, but we're going to look at each section, and we're going to look at their meaning and application for us together. So let's go ahead and start. We'll just read the first three verses to begin in a section I'm calling, if you're taking notes, Redeeming Love. Uh, the author writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west from the north and from the south. Let's pause there. What we are seeing here and looking at in these opening verses is the setup to the entire psalm. It's the 
It, it gives us the intent and it gives us the content of what this psalm is going to do. And, and it shows us the what, the who, and the why of this psalm. The first words we look at right there in the psalm is that it tells us what the psalmist wants his readers to do. He's saying, I want you to give thanks to the Lord. We also see this call to worship, this call to give thanks. He's not saying this is a personal, internal thing to do. He's not simply asking his readers to have an attitude of gratitude in their hearts. No, instead what we see in verse 2 is he wants them to say something about it. Go and tell somebody. I remember uh, we had a, a, one of our missionary partners, Pastor Peter, here recently, and I picked up on this phrase that he kept saying. In fact, I remember when Dave was talking, Dave Howard, one of our elders, Dave was telling a story, and, and Dave, he likes to tell really good stories. If you don't know Dave, he tells really good stories. And, but what Dave will do is he'll pause and he'll see how you're going to respond to the story. And, and Peter picked up on that, and he had this little phrase. He's, he's from Uganda, so he's got this Ugandan tone, and he says, well, talk about it. That was what he would say. He would talk about it. Keep saying it. Tell me this good news. Tell me the story that you're saying. And that's what he says here. Don't just have it inside of you. Go and tell someone about it. Don't just bottle, up, bottle it up inside. Tell someone which means he has a specific audience in mind in this psalm. The who in this psalm are, that are called upon to give thanks to the Lord are those who have experienced and benefited from the redeeming love of the Lord. In verse 2, we see he calls on the redeemed of the Lord to say so, to give thanks. Those whom God has saved from situations of which they couldn't possibly have escaped on their own. Now, Obviously, we can go by default. He's not asking the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, the non-Christian. He's not even asking anything else in creation to give thanks to the Lord, like maybe you might find in some other psalms. No, he has a specific person in mind here. This psalm is calling upon those who have a testimony of redemption, a story of God's redeeming love in their lives, to go and confess that, to give thanks. Thanks. Essentially saying this, my life apart from God was a mess. But then God showed up when I called to him and he answered and he saved my life. That's every Christian story. That's every story of, of God's people who have re been redeemed by him. But to broaden it out even more, the who is not just you who have a story. The who is us. The who is his covenant people those whom he has redeemed from all different walks of life and places. He says from the north and from the south and the east and the west, those whom he has gathered together. We also have a unified and corporate testimony of God's salvation. Now, in the context, who he's actually writing to is the nation of Israel as they're coming out of exile, as they were previously taken into exile from the Babylonians, but are now coming back to their homeland. He's talking to them, but he's also talking to us, the church, whom he has gathered in from all walks of life. I mean, just look at us here in this room. Every single one of you, you who have placed your faith in Jesus, you have a story to tell of God's work in your life. And this assembly is filled with people who have that same story. And as, you're, as we continue to walk together as a church, we will have a unified story. I mean, I think back to the people that we went through 2020 with, 
We have a story to tell of God's redeeming love in our lives. So that is the who of the psalm. Originally, it was the Israelites who were taken into captivity but have now returned to their land, as well as those, all those who have been redeemed by the Lord and have seen His faithfulness in their lives. And finally, in these opening verses, we see the why. Why are they to give thanks, those whom God has redeemed? He tells us there in verse 1, because God is good and His steadfast love endures forever. In a moment, we're going to look at some people who went through some really hard things in their life. And when you go through hardship, when you go through suffering, even as a Christian, there are two things that are brought into question, God's goodness and God's love. And in this psalm, he's essentially saying that God is good and God is steadfast in his love forever. And that's why we should praise him, that in light of all of the horrible things we have gone through, God is still good and he is still loving. In fact, that's the unspoken question of this psalm. How can God be both good and loving at the same time when I'm going through all of these things? But the spoken answer is this, that after everything we've been through, not only can we see how God was there, he was present in the darkest moments of our lives, but that God, when we were at our wit's end, I guess you could say, when we had no hope at all, we can also look back and see that God actually was good and working out good and showing us his love even in those moments, which again is kind of the main theme of this entire psalm, the steadfast love of the Lord. And we know that because verse 1 talks about the steadfast love of God, and then you go all the way to the end. Look with me at verse 43. He writes, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's his love that is the focus of this psalm, but it's his love that he demonstrates when we are at the end of ourselves and we have absolutely nothing left to give. What does God's love look like right there? So with that as the introduction, we're going to consider some testimonies, four, in fact, general testimonies of God's people and see the way in which God responds in all of them. The first is found in verses four through nine in a section I'm calling the love that brings us home. The love that brings us home. Verse four says, some wandered in deserts, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. If you were with us last week, we looked at Psalm 63. It was a psalm of David. It was a psalm when he was in the wilderness fleeing for his life. And in the psalm, he cries out, it's God, you and you alone my soul longs for. And we talked about how every single human being has a thirst inside of them, a longing for more. And, and we talked about how everyone has this God-shaped void in their lives, and it can only be filled with God. Though we try and fill it with other things, it never works. It never is satisfied. Well, in this first stanza, we see that God's people, like that psalmist in Psalm 63, wandered in the desert. They were in exile, remember, from their homeland when the Babylonians took over. And because of their situation, they were homeless. 
They were destitute. They were lacking in basic provision. And so they did what really the only thing they could do. The only thing the redeemed of the Lord even thinks to do instinctively, they cried out to God. Again, what else could they do? And what we see immediately is that the moment they cry out to God, God answers them. It's, remember, this is a psalm. This was a, a thing that they would sing in rhythm and, and in tempo. There would be a, a beat to this song. And so you could almost think about it as a beat. They cried out to the Lord. And in the next beat, in the next measure, God answered. It was immediate. It was instantaneous. It was as if God was just sitting there, almost like a drummer, re- ready for the count. And then he hits down on the drum. God was right there, ready, anticipating this prayer. And he swoops in without a second's delay and perfectly on cadence delivers his people and he saves them. And notice what he says God does next. He delivers them, but how does he deliver them? He leads them by a straight way. So they wandered aimlessly, having no real sense of direction. Now he leads them by a straight way until they reach home. As an illustration, I listened to a podcast uh, (coughs) a while back And on the podcast, this guy told a story of how he rescued his friend who had gotten lost in the woods. And and he got a call from another friend that essentially said, hey, this, this girl that they knew, she went on a hike. I think she went on a run on a trail. And, and she never came back. And she had been gone for like a day or so. And there was already a search underway. Well, this guy who had gotten the call and was talking on the podcast, he was like, Liam Neeson and Taken, he had a particular set of skills. He was actually a skilled backcountry hunter. And so he knew his way around the forest and he had all the tools to not get lost himself. And so he got on a plane and went to where they were and he went looking for her. And to make a long story short, he found her in only a matter of a few hours. And it was still luck for sure. But when he found her, he describes how she you know, you ask the basic questions. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're at? All the triage questions. And she was dehydrated. She was disoriented. She had no idea where she was, no idea who she was, and no way to get out. But eventually, because he came, he led her out in a straight path. And true story, they eventually got married. You, I really can't make that up. That is fact. I mean, if someone saves your life, it's probably going to happen. <laughs> but he described in this, her condition on this podcast just how mentally lost she was because of fear and dehydration and the disorienting thought process that she had. It, it spiraled into chaos, and she was totally, completely, utterly helpless. And she wandered around aimlessly in the woods. Eventually, she rested under a tree, and that's where he found her. Her. But had this man not come and given her a straight way home, she would have certainly died there in the woods. And that's the image of this psalm, that God's people physically, spiritually dehydrated and disoriented, lost in the desert, having no way of getting out. What do they do? They radio up to God and he rescues them. The good news is, is he comes for his people. He knows where you're at. And friends, some of you were that way. You, uh, you got lost, you know, you had good intentions, but somehow you took a wrong turn and for whatever reason, you, you didn't know how to get your way back home. 
And it took God to come for you. And He did come for you when you cried out to Him. And He saved you and He led you home. And, and ironically, with the metaphor of the story, He made you His bride and brought you into His family. And now, what are you encouraged to do in response to this great redeeming love that God has given to you? Just thank the Lord. Thank Him, for without His steadfast love, you were lost, you were empty, but now you have His love, and you are safe and satisfied. It's really amazing. But maybe there's more. Maybe that doesn't relate directly to your story. Maybe this next one will. Stanza two, we see another group, another testimony of God's redeeming love. Verses 10 to 16, a section I'm calling the love that makes us free. The love that makes us free. Some They sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. You know, there's a subtle irony in this stanza that I think is worth mentioning. The irony is that for some people, they know the Bible, they know the Word of God, but for some reason, they see the Bible as too restrictive. They see the Bible as a bunch of rules and regulations, and they see the God in the Bible as a basic cosmic buzzkill, there to not give them joy, but take the joy away. They see God's Word as oppressive and an obstacle that they need to overcome in order to experience true joy and fulfillment. So what do they do? They rebel. Whatever God's Word says, I'm going to do the opposite. But the irony of that is that they think they're moving into greater spaces of freedom, but they're actually moving into greater spaces of bondage and sin and enslavement to their own devices. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see this in the very beginning in in the story of Adam and Eve. God gave them one commandment. Enjoy everything but this one tree. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't stomach the fact that there was this one thing that God said, don't go this way. Don't go and get involved in evil. Wow. And they couldn't handle it. And so right there in the beginning, we see God's people questioning God's word and suffering the consequences of it. We see later on the nation of Israel constantly disobeying God's word, and it caused them great hardship as a result. But, but there were, of course, those rare moments when they obeyed and they walked by faith and, and life was sweet. And for this reason, I think for us, we can relate very well because I think there are some maybe raised in the church, raised to know God's Word, taught the Scriptures, but then they got to a certain age and, and they went their own way because they realized, or whether they realized it at the time or would have admitted it at the time, they saw God's Word as a little too restrictive, too oppressive. Maybe they felt like, you know what, I need to go wander away and make a testimony for myself. And then five, ten years later, they, need, they ended up regretting it, and they found themselves in bondage to sin. And just like that story, I think everyone reflects on that as the prodigal son story. 
Maybe like that boy who wandered from his loving father to go experience life in the world. Maybe in you, something awakened when you were at the bottom of the barrel. Remember, he was in his father's house. Everything was awesome. And the next thing, the next scene in the story is he's eating pig food. And all of a sudden, he comes to his senses. What am I doing here? I had everything in my father's house. And so like him, you cried out to the Lord and and he rescued you. He delivered you from your bondage to sin. Maybe that relates to some of you. That's your story. And, and what does the psalmist tell you to do now that God has redeemed you from that wayward direction? He's saying, don't brag about your time of rebellion. Instead, brag about God's goodness and steadfast love toward you. Give thanks for his deliverance and power to break your bonds. But he goes on. There's another group In stanza three, we see a love that makes us whole, a love that makes us whole. Let's read verses 17 to 22. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them, and He delivered them from their distress, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. As you can see in this stanza, the situation's getting worse, right? It moved from the first group. They were taken from their home by a more powerful enemy. The the second group, they knew God, but they rebelled against His Word, and they suffered the consequences of it. And and now we have this third group, and he essentially just says they were fools. And another psalm we'll look at, uh, maybe in this series, is Psalm 14, and it describes for us what a fool is, at least according to the Bible. The fool, in verse 1 of Psalm 14, says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is not an idiot. The fool is not someone who lacks intelligence. The fool, at least in Scripture, is the one who believes there is no God in their mind. Or, here's another way of looking at this, maybe they say they believe in God with their minds or with their mouths, but they live every day as if there is no God. It's like a functional atheist, you could say. Uh, You see someone, again, they may claim, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe He's there, but then (laughs) you look at their lives and say, I don't really think you do believe He's there, because you're, you're acting as if there is no eternal life, there is no future judgment, there is no better way, there is no God's Word and and what He actually says. You're living as if you're God, and He's not even there. That's the fool, the one who lives their life as if God does not exist. So what we see in this third stanza are those who foolishly are living as if there is no God. And yes, though many of the Israelites believed in God in their minds, they were also fools among them in that they lived as if God wasn't really there. And they indulged in their sinful desires and they suffered as a result of that functional atheism. And perhaps the person who can relate best to this are those who grew up not really believing in anything, not believing or being raised to believe that there is a God or or any sort of faith, and so they just basically did what the world tells them to do, YOLO, right? You only live once, 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I mean, we might as well just live it up right now because there is no future. There is no eternity. Eventually, we're just going to become worm food. So just experience it all right now. The only problem is even if you live that way and you indulge in sin, which is, according to the Bible, pleasurable for a season, it still costs more even in this life than what it initially tried to sell itself for. And those in this psalm found that out the hard way. And perhaps some of you can relate to that. And like those in this psalm, you fell down the rabbit hole of your own sinful indulgence and desires. And eventually, when you got to the end of that rabbit hole, you came to the end of yourself. And you were at the bottom. And when you did, because there was nothing else you could do, you cried out to the Lord, and He saved even you. And how does He save you? Well, He tells us right there in the psalm, He sent His Word, His Gospel, and He healed you. Because His Gospel, at least according to Paul, makes the fool wise and it makes the wise foolish. It brings us to the end of ourselves, and then it lifts us up again. And what does he say those people ought to do now as a part of that testimony? Now and forever, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And, but he adds something here beyond what he has said in the previous two. He said, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of his deeds in songs of joy. What's a sacrifice of thanksgiving that we can give in our day and age? Well, I think it's connected to what Paul wrote in Romans 12.1. That in light of God's immeasurable mercies, that we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. In other words, he gave his whole life for you in order that you might give your whole life to him. And we're to tell others of what he has done and his deeds in songs of joy. More, more on that in a moment. Lastly, we have one final group. The fourth stanza, verses 23 to 32, we see a love that brings us peace. A love that brings us peace. Some, verse 23, went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Another way to translate that phrase, too, would be their wisdom was swallowed up. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them <coughs> extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders." What we're looking at here in this last group, it's not the oppressed group like the first one. It isn't the wayward prodigal like the second group. And it is not the functional atheist like we see in the third group. No, this stanza is actually the worst of them all. This is the person who thinks they have everything and have no need of anything, especially God. 
You see, the metaphor of the the seafaring mariner throughout Scripture is that of the person who has ambition and drive. There is no telling them they can't cross that ocean. There is no telling them they can't climb that mountain. These these are those people who feel like, I can do it, I I can handle it. There is nothing you can say that I cannot do or I cannot fix all on my own. You see, the worst possible spiritual condition is not the person in the gutter. They know they have needs, right? The worst is the, the spiritual condition of the person who feels like they have absolutely no need at all. They have everything in and of themselves. Jesus said, it is more difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of needle. Why? Because I got everything I need. What do I need God for? However, and I will admit this may shock some, God's love is able to even reach that person that self-industrious type of person, but it's gonna take something fierce to break that pride. And in the Psalm we see, what does God do? He raises up, causes, commands a storm to come and beat down on these sailors. It doesn't say he allowed the storm. It says he caused the storm, which may bother some people to think, God causing hardship, difficulty in my life? That sounds evil. That sounds wicked. No, it's not. What's worse, letting someone falsely believe that they're just fine apart from God to only find out in the end that they're not, or for God now to allow them to see through His loving discipline that they need Him and that it is only in him that they have everything that they could possibly need? The answer is obvious. It's the second. That is the most loving thing that God could do, but that is not the kind of love that the world tries to sell or accept about God. In fact, this is exactly what we see Jesus doing with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe some of you even thought about that as we read through that last stanza. You remember the story in Mark's gospel? Jesus tells his disciples, he just did this amazing miracle, but for some reason they still didn't really believe that Jesus was who he was. And so he's like, okay, guys, we're going to the boat. (laughs) We're going to the other side of the sea. But while on the way, what happened? A storm showed up. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. And meanwhile, they do everything that they can. They get their buckets. They do whatever to to try and survive, right? To try and keep their life afloat. But when they got to their wit's end, they cried out to Jesus. Jesus, save us. And what does Jesus do? Instantly, he says, hush, be still. The same words that we're seeing in this psalm. And the point of that story in Mark's gospel is that the same God who rose up the wind in Psalm 107 to break the pride of those sailors in order that they might be saved is the same God that was in the boat with those disciples that day to break their pride in order that their blindness might go away and they might see Jesus for who he is. Friends, that's the toughest lesson anyone can learn when God has to break the hardness of someone's pride in their lives. But he's done it for some of us here in this room. And we have a testimony of that. And like in all the other situations, God answered your prayer and he saved you from your situation and he brought you to a place of peace and calm. Notice in the stanza, like in the last, there's a little addition. They're called to sing for joy in the last one. 
Uh, now they're called to extol or sing praise in the congregation, in the assembly of the elders. Essentially, he's saying your worship is fueled from your witness, your testimony, and your testimony is a source of your worship to God. Look at what God has done for me. So those are the four testimonies of God's redeeming love. And and at different points of our lives, in any Christian's life, we fit into that place where we have gone wayward. We've been prideful. Things have happened to us that that we didn't cause, but, but they happened. And God in every situation was there in His way and in His timing. But in the next section, these last few verses, we'll go a little faster through this, you could see it as a bridge of the song, where the psalmist essentially is giving an explanation of everything he has already said. And to be honest, what he's saying is love doesn't always work the way we want it to work, at least God's love, or the way we think it should go. Instead, his love is not only redeeming, it's unrelenting at times. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. In other words, what he's saying there is God's love is also just, and His love is also corrective. God does not ever affirm us in our sin. He confronts us in our sin and then transforms us out of that and then conforms us into the image of Jesus. And it's all out of His love for us. He does not coddle us in our situation. He does not accept us in our sinfulness. Yes, He accepts us, but He doesn't say, stay as you are. He says, I'm going to change you from what you were to what I want you to be. On the other hand, though, once He's broken you down and His correction has taken effect, He goes on, verse 35, He turns a desert into pools of water a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, not by their might or anything they bring to the table, but by his blessing they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. And then he ends this way in verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We must admit That God's love, though we know God's love has saved us, it has satisfied us, that His love is steadfast, it is unfailing, we also must admit that at the end of the day, God's love is still a great mystery to us. Why does God continue to love people like us? Why did God love us in the beginning where He would save us? I mean, think back to that moment for, for some of us when God pulled us out of our situation. Why would God love someone like me. We're going to actually look at a psalm next week where the psalmist is essentially saying that. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Why does God continue to love people like you and me? And and how is God able in his love to, to cause all things, even bad and bizarre things, 
to work out for my good. This is the great mystery of God's redeeming love. And perhaps that's what the psalmist is alluding to by the way he ends there in verse 43. Think about it. Set your mind to contemplate these things, that God is good and God is love and His love is steadfast and that He answers your prayers when you call to Him in His timing, in His ways, and that in His mysterious love, He will allow us even to get to our wit's end. Because in that moment, in the end, when we're at the end of ourselves, we get to experience a kind of love from God that we could not experience in any other way. And when we get to the end of ourselves, notice this, God doesn't laugh at us. God doesn't point the finger and say, you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. He knows you can't get yourself out. In fact, he wants you to get to that place so you call out to him because he can always get you out of it. He can always save. Nothing, no one is so far from God. Nothing is impossible with him. And he does so. He saves his people in order that the redeemed of the Lord may say so and give thanks to him in the congregation. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion. (coughs) God, we come before you and we do in this moment collectively give thanks for your steadfast love and your goodness. God, there are times when we don't understand your goodness. We don't see or feel your goodness, but we know you are good and we trust you and we trust your heart and your love toward us. And we know that even in the hardship and the difficulty that we're going through, that you love us and that you are working good in our lives. And Lord, only the person who believes, who has faith, who has seen you do these things can actually confess that. The world does not understand that. The world looks (coughs) at the gospel and to them it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so God, we, we thank you for your love toward us, and and we want to be motivated and inspired to go and, and to share our testimony with any and all so that you may be glorified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.